You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.24, Lonely Hearts, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and if we die before completing our mission, we're counting on you to carry on the podcast for at least three years or until it's destroyed by a more powerful Gundam podcast. Whichever comes first. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and lamenting that this week's episode and research have reawakened my dormant desire for travel. It's been hibernating for the past year and frankly needs to hibernate some more. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 428 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, RCF and Will B. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Remember, dear listeners, that links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at gundampodcast.com slash support. And remember that our Season 3 Haiku Contest is ongoing right now. If you haven't joined yet, you still have time. You can submit one haiku a week from now until 11.59 p.m. New York Standard Time on March 7th, 2021. You can submit haiku either on social media by tagging Gundam Podcast, that's us, and including the hashtag Gundam Haiku with your Gundam Haiku, or by going to our website, gundampodcast.com slash haiku and submitting your poem via the form there. We have had some really incredible submissions so far, and we cannot wait to see what y'all come up with in the next couple weeks. And we're looking forward to announcing more information about our very exciting prize bundles in the near future. But I can tell you that all four prize bundles will include Gunpla, generously provided by the USA Gundam Store. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 26, Masai's Heart, or Masai no Kokoro. For research this week, we are going to talk about geography and architecture as we try, once again, to figure out just where on earth the Gundam crew has gotten to. But first, Radio Free Shangri-La is transmitting again from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Earth's sphere. Far, far from Earth! In another place, in another time. Captain's Log. According to the navigational systems here on Zabibi's spacecraft, we passed the intergalactic dateline last night, making today the 14th of Space January. Tomorrow will be my birthday. I'm excited to see what kind of tastefully restrained gala the crew throws in my honor. After escaping from the Minoan Bull, we set a course for the capital of the League of Free Planets, where I intend to offer my services to Supreme Commander Mackenharm in her ongoing struggle against Admiral Evil. 
Unfortunately, during our escape, the fuel compartment was damaged, and the Triminovskium crystals necessary for faster-than-light travel were lost. Luckily, I was able to devise a clever slingshot trajectory around the local gravity wells that propelled us in the direction of the nearest neutral refueling depot. I calculate that we will arrive there in just a few more days. Meanwhile, I'll continue working on this prototype universal translator so that we can better understand our new alien friend. Zabibi. Processing. Processing. Translating. Translation completed. Playing translation. You are wasting your time. End of translation. It still needs more calibration. Vale's Diary, Space Date, the 16th of Space January. The captain spent the whole day yesterday sulking, but wouldn't tell us why he was so upset. When I asked him if anything was wrong, he just snarled, I shouldn't have to tell you, and stomped the 2.7 meters to the other end of the ship. Being on the run and cooped up in here must finally be getting to him. It feels like a lifetime has passed since we escaped from the warship that we are still calling the Minoan Bull. Well, not Zabibi. He calls it Zabibi. For me, it's a way to remember our departed computer, Alice, who gave it that stupid name. I mean, seriously? It looks way more like a Babylonian Lamassu. The captain tells me that we are on our way to the League of Free Planets so that we can ask their scientists for help reopening the wormhole and getting back to Earth. To home. I really hope he's telling the truth. But first, we have to make a pit stop for more Trimanovskim crystals. The captain accidentally jettisoned ours during the escape because he thought they were space caltrops. We're getting a signal from the station now. We should arrive tomorrow. Chorblash Mugglethroid on Chirper.Space, 18th of Space January. Am I the exhaust port for refusing to give two weird aliens free fuel? So I, 29, gender non-conforming octopoid, work at a Chris station in the Giraffe Nebula. It's a pretty slow gig, except for the occasional ship from Admiral Evil's armada stopping by to refuel. Yesterday, this little corvette limps into port, and out of it come these two sentients. They were floating around all hairless and bipedal, which is obviously so gross, but I wasn't going to say anything. Talking about how they needed fuel so they could go meet up with the LOFP. And I'm like, I don't care if you're members of the anti-evil universe gang. I'm not going to risk my job giving you free fuel. Obviously, the male starts ranting and raving about how the fate of the galaxy is at stake, and the female looks like she's thinking about going for one of my throats. Then, and you are not going to believe this next part, Zabibi comes in. I explain what's going on, and then he says, Zabibi, Zabibi, Zabibi. And like, what am I supposed to say to that? So I gave them the fuel, but I don't know what I'll do if my supervisor finds out. Zabibi, Zabibi. Zabibi, Zabibi, Zabibi. Zabibi. Zabibi's blog. Astral Unit 22.B00. With my two hapless assistants in tow and a tank full of crystal, 
We are racing toward Thride Z, capital of the League of Free Planets and homeworld of Space Princess Miranda. I haven't told the humans yet, but the planet is already under siege and we'll likely have to fight our way through a blockade of white devils just to reach the atmospheric defense line. Soon we shall see how these featherless bipeds handle their first taste of real combat. <coughs> And now the recap for Masai's Heart. The Gundam team is still deep in the desert and still hunting for water. There's supposed to be an oasis nearby, but their map is from before the One Year War, and the desert terrain all looks the same to the Spacenoids. El and Rue bicker and snipe at each other as they hunker in the shade, waiting for Judo to return. Not far from them, a young woman in a hooded cape sets a Xeon helmet on a rock formation. She talks to its previous owner, Tag, telling him that she is maintaining the mobile suit just as he taught her. When she sees Judo's core fighter in the distance, she murmurs that things are happening just as Tag said they would. Judo doesn't see her, but he does see her camel, and seems to think that if he can catch it, he can get water from its hump. He chases the poor creature, but in his single-mindedness fails to notice how tall the dunes are. A cloud of sand billows outward as he crashes, almost burying the core fighter in the dune. Jumping out to pursue the camel on foot, he instead runs into the young woman, Masai, comforting the scared animal. On hearing Judo's explanation of who he is and what he's doing, she shares her water skin and offers to show him the way to the oasis. Kuru is the first to notice them approaching and runs to hug Judo and chide him for leaving her behind. But the normally talkative Puru is struck silent by Masai, who seems to radiate sadness. Masai turns her gaze on Judo's friends and their assembled mobile suits and says she won't be able to guide them after all but if they go in the direction that the shadows point, they'll find it in no time. While Judo goes to retrieve the core fighter, Puru trailing after him, the rest of the group set off, walking the mobile suits through the desert to keep a low profile. Reaching the edge of the town, most of the kids rush up, ebullient at the sight of the oasis, but Rue tries to put on the brakes. They need to try to seem unthreatening and to ask properly and politely before they take any water. Even her efforts do no good. The elders find the pilot's arrival suspicious and refuse to share water. After all, with their machines, they should be able to leave the desert easily. The kids from Shangri-La are surprised and angry that they're so unwelcome, with Beecha muttering, what did we ever do to them? But Rue thinks she understands. This village and its people must have been harmed in the last war. Judo and Puru have yet to arrive, they're still trudging toward the core fighter, and Puru is slowing them down. Stopped at the top of a dune, Puru looks around and spots Masai entering a nearby cave. She and Judo decide to investigate. Inside, Masai has climbed into the cockpit of a partially buried Gelgoog. She is wearing a Xeon normal suit and is about to put Tag's old helmet on when Judo and Puru confront her. I have to show them, she says, thinking not of Xeon or Axis, the Federation or Ayug, but of her village. Judo and Puru grab hold of the helmet, trying to keep Masai from putting it on and launching. 
and while she struggles against them, she cries out, I'm doing this in Tag's place. The intensity of Masai's feelings surprises Puru into letting go, and Masai hits Judo in the face with the helmet before pulling it from his grasp. Once she closes the cockpit and the Gelgug rises out of the sand, there's nothing left for Judo and Puru to do but run for the core fighter. Masai heads straight for the village, and the Gundam team scramble to deal with the sudden appearance of an enemy mobile suit, sure that it must be a scout for a larger force. But Masai has been waiting and training for years, and her knowledge of the terrain allows her to hold her own even while outnumbered. Gliding over the sand, the Gelgug trips up Rue and Bicha, lures Mondo into quicksand, darts around rock formations, and uses sand to blind her opponents. All the while, Masai talks to Tag, repeating his advice and lessons, telling him how well his plans are working. Maneuvering into a nimble jump, she lands the Gelgug on the Mega Rider. Just as she is about to put her beam Naginata through the ship, she is struck in the back by a missile. Judo and Puru have arrived. Once Judo forms the double Zeta, Tag's Gelgug doesn't stand a chance. Yet again, Judo finds himself locking beam sabers with an enemy who has no chance of winning. And again he asks, why are you doing this? Masai explains that Tag was hated and shunned by the village for being an outsider and a soldier. It seems he had lived there from the One Year War until his death, certain that the war would come again and that the village needed to be prepared to defend itself. Now Masai is determined to prove the village wrong and redeem Tag's honor. The Double Zeta's beam saber slices the head and one arm from the Gelgug. The damage is such that the Gelgug may explode at any moment. Defeated and contemplating the possibility of death, Masai is torn. If she dies, she follows Tag. How can she face the village when it seems she's proven them right? How can she die and leave the village to curse her and Tag for all eternity? Judo angrily blames Tag, thinking it's despicable for a man to make a woman fight, but Pudu tells him he's wrong. In spite of her usual self-absorption, Pudu is deeply moved by Masai's feelings and begs Judo to save her. Working quickly, he climbs into the Gelgug's cockpit and removes Masai's helmet. She seems dazed and shoves him away, but he slaps her and yells for her to snap out of it. As he drags her out, she almost tries to go back for Tag's helmet, but Judo yanks her clear, and Pudu uses the double Zeta to shield them when the Gelgug explodes. Afterwards, the townspeople allow the Gundam team to refill their water supplies. Bicha wonders out loud why anyone would keep living in such a place before getting back into Hyakushiki. Puru, sitting in Judo's lap while he flies the core fighter, leans against the glass of the cockpit with tears in her eyes, thinking that now Tag is really and truly gone, and Masai will be alone forever. In the village, everyone gives Masai a wide berth, and as she sits alone in the cool dark, she wonders, what now? Okay, so we have to talk about the new theme song. Yeah, new intro, new outro. So we have the new opening song, Silent Voice, and the new ending track, 10 Million Year Galaxy. Both are sung by the same person, Hiroe Jun. And in 1987, she sort of seems to have tried to break into the anime industry because she had about half a dozen songs on different anime in 87, including... 
two songs on a heavy metal Elgheim OVA and three songs on Relic Armor Legasium, or I think I'm saying that right, which was another OVA also in 87. Yeah, I like these. Admittedly, not as catchy as Anime Genai, but I probably like it better as a song. I suspected that you might. Many people do. I think the general consensus is that Silent Voice is the better of the two OPs. I prefer Anime Genai, personally, being a man of culture and taste. <laughs> but Silent Voice is pretty nice. I like how both Anime Genai and Silent Voice uh, incorporate an internal contradiction into their title. Because it is anime, of mm-hmm. course, uh, and the voice is not actually silent. I was less focused on the uh, music and more on the animation. Mm. They reuse some of the sequences. The transition from Amuro to Camille to Judo stays. Uh, they keep the transformation sequence, the combination <laughs> for the <laughs> double Zeta, but they change quite a bit as well. Perhaps the most significant insertion is that there's a lot of Haman now. She plays a very prominent role at the beginning. They really foreground Haman and Pudu. Haman, as you said, features quite prominently in the very beginning. Then she is not part of the girls, girls, girls pan of every girl so far (laughs) in the show. But later, there's an almost uh, implied transformation from Pudu to Haman. Mm. Interestingly, one thing that was deleted was the scene of Quattro yelling that shows up in uh, both versions of OP1, uh, the bit where Quattro sort of screams at one edge of the screen and then Judo screams at the other edge. Its presence in OP1 was uh, especially intriguing in retrospect since Quattro does not appear at all in the first part of Double Zeta. So why is he there yelling? No one knows. I didn't notice as many interesting points about the ending animation, but there was the transition from the Gundam to the Zeta to the double Zeta is quite prominent. Yeah, and to call it a transition is accurate, but does not capture the (laughs) weirdness of this sequence. They start off with the first Gundam, and it's a relatively normal size, but it's got like one arm extended at like a 90 degree angle to the body, its hand and a fist, and then the camera is panning up and it pans across the Mark II, the Zeta, and then the double Zeta, but each one is larger than the previous one and each one is still doing this one arm rigidly extended goofy pose. I don't know what's going on with that pose, but it does not look as good as they think it does. To be honest, I barely noticed the song. I was paying so much attention to this weird transitional sequence. Whereas I, every time I think about the intro and the outro, just come back to the here's every girl in the show (laughs) clip, which they've done a couple of times. And I just, uh, I cannot imagine the purpose of this except to be like, look at all these cute girls that are in our show. Don't you want to watch now? (laughs) Cute girls. We promise. Feels a little gross to me. In First Gundam, they do a similar thing with the women of the white base, if I'm remembering correctly. But they also follow it with a sequence of the men of the white base. Right. So it feels a little more like balance. It's more like, here's our whole cast. Obviously, all of these characters are interested to you. Unless here, we're going to forefront all the eye candy because that's, we assume, a major draw for our audience, who we clearly assume are all attracted to women. 
or people attracted to robots. And then the Venn diagram in the center column, that's your hardcore Gundam fan. I thought you were going to start talking about which robots are female. That is left up to the interpretation and desires of the viewer. But perhaps we should talk about the episode itself. There are so many ways in which this episode is a repeat of what we watched last week. But from the perspective of Nikki's wife, instead of from the perspective of Rommel. Yeah, centering it in the perspective of the local inhabitants of this desert, I think is a very important change. Gives the episode a whole different emotional tenor, and I really like it. I liked the previous episode. I think this one is better. I quite like that they never entirely spell out what happened with Tug, that it's referred to obliquely in a couple of different places and you can kind of piece together what happened and then it's not dissimilar to what Rommelkor were doing you know that he wound up in this village during the one year war or immediately afterwards that he died three years ago and so for those intervening years he was living here that he was certain the war would come back and that it would touch this village and that they needed to be prepared and armed and ready to fight back and protect themselves. But he also built a new life for himself. Seems to have probably fallen in love with this local girl. And a prime difference between Tag and Ramalkor is that Tag really does seem to have wanted the village to be able to protect itself from the effects of the war. He wasn't training Masai in how to use the Galgoog so that she could fight for Zeon. They weren't setting all these traps and doing all this preparation because he believed Zeon would rise again. It seems he really thought this was the best way to protect this village where he had built a new life. Although, as you say, the show never lays that out explicitly. Tag's actual motivations, because he's long dead and only survives as a memory, could have been totally different from the way we receive them through Masai. Absolutely. Also, is he completely gone? Hmm. But before we talk about that, <laughs> I wanted to point out, this is not the first time in Double Zeta that it has seemed like the two different writers have been given identical briefs for two different back-to-back -back episodes. We noted all the way back at the beginning of the series in Judo's decision and the menace of the Zusa, that those were both episodes where the whole point of the episode was Judo deciding to become the Zeta's pilot instead of just stealing it and selling it. Then later you get Judo in space and Sayonara Fa, which are both about trying to reach the Lavian Rose, while Bicha and Mondo betray the Argama from within. Judo goes out into battle with a beam rifle that doesn't work. Uh, and then at the end of the episode, an Axis officer reveals that there are traitors aboard the ship. In one episode, it's Mashima. In one episode, it's Gotten. But it's like, it's basically the same substructure for the episode. Uh, and likewise, Judo Sorties and Earth Ablaze both revolve around Judo flying off alone to try to figure out which Axis ship is carrying Lena and stop it before it enters the atmosphere. And now we have this one compared with the prior Face of Rommel. I was particularly struck by the idea that although Masai describes Tag as having been hated and shunned by the village, he still lived there for a length of time, right? He wasn't driven off. And they must have at least let him 
use water or trade with them for him to have survived near the village for so long. And I think the ending of the episode does raise some questions about how accurate Masai's perception of events in the past is. I do think there's a lot of that theme of misunderstanding. It's clear by the end that the villagers don't really understand what Masai is feeling, what she's been going through. There's an inability to connect with her, to understand her needs. And it does seem like maybe that goes both ways. She's obsessed with this idea that they uh, resented and hated Tag, but they've mostly kind of forgotten about him. But at the same time, if if their treatment of him in any way contributed to his death, that could certainly explain a grudge on her part, especially if she felt that Tag was trying to protect all of them and trying to do what was best for them, which... Obviously, like, what right does an outsider have to determine that? (laughs) But she loved him, and she agreed with him, and if she felt like part of the reason he died was because of the rejection of the village, that would explain a lot of resentment. Yet she doesn't try to get revenge on the village. She doesn't try to destroy the village or hurt anybody. She just wants to, I want to say, prove herself, but that's not really what it is. She says pretty explicitly that she wants to redeem Tog... She wants to prove that Tog was right. And she wants to prove the, like, strength of this Gelgoog. Judo confronts, again, an opponent similar to Rommel, who is seemingly bent on fighting an unwinnable fight. And one who thinks that there is no future unless they win. And again, Judo's not really capable of understanding his opponent's reasons. Without help. Well, he never understands Rommel at all, and I strongly suspect Puru wouldn't have been any help with Rommel. I think there's an age element at play here where Mm. Puru is able to empathize with particularly strong feelings from other young people. Because we also see this with the the young man from Sibling Love on the South Seas episode, Mm -hmm. where Puru can feel what he's thinking and feeling. Even more so than in the Sibling Love on the South Seas episode, here Pudu is immediately struck by the intensity of Masai's feelings from the minute she sees Masai. I think Masai is a new type. I think that's a component of why Pudu is able to understand her and connect with her. Pudu is also the reason why I brought up, is Tag really dead? Because the, the helmet is very clearly symbolic for Tog from the beginning. She holds it up like Yorick's skull in Hamlet to talk to it. And carries it with her everywhere. And when she goes into battle, she puts it on, and then it's like she can hear him. It's not like she's talking at his spirit, but with it. It feels like one half of a conversation. And then she doesn't want to leave it behind when Judo rescues her from the exploding Gelgook. And afterwards, Pudu is talking about Masai and says, Tog died three years ago. Now she's really alone. And that could be, you know, metaphorical that as long as she was living for this mission, as long as she was uh, living for Tog still, she wasn't really alone. So, you know, it could be figurative. Or it could mean that Tog was still around in the way that new type spirits can still be around. Mm Mm-hmm. Attached to the helmet? <laughs> or to the Gelgoog, or to Maasai. Or the the area, you know, it's, we, we don't know how any of this stuff works, but... <laughs> no one knows how any of it works. No one knows what Zion Dekun was really talking about. 
The village elder at the end says a similar thing when he says, the mobile suit and Masai's heart have both fallen, neither will rise again. So again, we have that association between Masai, her spirit, Tag, uh, and the Gelgug, the, the physical repository of the spirit. This is part of the reason why I think Masai is a new type, because she does seem to be holding on to this spirit. And as a visual note while we're here, you'll notice Masai's eyes. Uh, they're the big, like, flat, all iris, no pupil, one color eyes. And only a few other characters have had those. Lala had them, and Puru has them. I assumed that was just a race and coloration thing for the most part. I hadn't noticed that Puru had them. You know, Lala had black eyes. Masai's are dark brown in most of the scenes. Yeah, if it had just been Lala, I would have thought the same thing. But they do it with Puru. I'm still not convinced that's on purpose. I do think Masai could be a new type. I just don't. (laughs) Listen, I'm just throwing out evidence. I'm piling the evidence up on the scale. The people at home can make their own judgments. Sort of going back to ways in which this parallels the previous episode, like Ramalkor, Masai's knowledge of the area gives her a huge advantage against the Gundam team. Uh, she's constantly tripping them up in the sand, knocking them down into pits of quicksand, <laughs> using the sand to blind them. Masai is like a desert trickster. She is in her element and using her element in order to turn the tables on this larger, stronger, more advanced force. And she's clearly a very skilled mobile suit pilot. Uh, I find it interesting that Judo gets angry at the idea that Tog made her fight or like made her promise to do this or forced her in some way to do this. Because he's, he's gotten it wrong. He's also sitting there with Puru in his cockpit. <laughs> Um, Well, he's not making Puru fight. Somebody else made Puru fight long before she met Judo. Long. She's like 11 years old. So (laughs) (laughs) shortly before she met Judo. Judo very consistently hates the adults who make children fight. And so it makes sense that he would also hate a man making a woman fight. I just think, again, it's both hypocritical and fails to understand Masai's deeper feelings about both Tag and whatever it was Tog was trying to accomplish, what it was he was trying to do. And to the show's credit, it knows Judo is wrong, and it says so right there. We get Pudu saying, no, that's not it. You're getting it wrong. You're, you're off the mark. It's this other thing. It's great to see Pudu in that role as Judo's sort of like guide. In a way, even his, his mentor, even though she's significantly younger than him, um, because that's really the role that Lena played for him when they were still together. And as Puru fits into the little sister role in Judo's life, she's doing a lot of the same things. And the contrast between her remarkable ability to read and to reach other people versus her impulsive and thoughtless personal behavior, especially early on when she wastes the water, which is another thing that happens in both of these episodes. Yeah, she's so consistently self-centered in her conduct (laughs) and yet she has this ability to feel people's feelings and understand them under the right circumstances well like all children she's a little monster but she has the capacity to be really good and yet another parallel to rommel at the end of rommel's face 
we get a considerable amount of internal monologue from Masai about whether or not she wants to die and why. But her reasons are very different. Rommel is quite certain that he wants to die, and it's because he has nothing to live for now that his mission has failed. Masai is sort of weighing in the balance, how can she face the village when it's been proven that this thing that she's devoted all this time to is a failure? So in that way, it's very like Rommel. But on the other hand, can she live with them, you know, cursing her and Tog forever is how she puts it. Can she live with them uh, being sort of self-satisfied that they were right and not being able to address that in any way once she's dead and gone? If she were dead, she wouldn't have to deal with the fact that the villagers might, very self-satisfied, be like, aha, we were right all along. But she hates the idea that they might feel that way. Because if she didn't, then it wouldn't bother her now that Tog is dead. He's freed of whatever opprobrium the villagers would have heaped on him. It doesn't bother him anymore. Well, it depends on her conception of the afterlife also. <laughs> well, and whether or not he is actually still haunting her. Look, we don't know. We don't hear Tog, only she does. <laughs> so maybe this whole episode, Tog is just off screen going, yeah, go Masai, fight, fight for me, fight for my honor, redeem my memory. It's the only thing that matters to me. She also imagines that death would be mean following Tog and theoretically being reunited with him. And ultimately, I don't think she chooses to live so much as Pudu demands that Judo save her and Judo does it. Yes. In a great sequence, by the way, I love the sequence of the Gundam like punching and then tearing at the cockpit of the Gelgoog. We get this very rare demonstration of the mobile suit's capacity to do something other than kill. And yes, it was the mobile suit that put her in danger in the first place, but it is also making it possible to save her life. The mobile suit saves her life not just by tearing open the cockpit, but then Pudu uses the mobile suit to shield Judo and Masai from the explosion. I don't know if this was intentional, but remember back in First Gundam and the battle between Amuro, Makveh, and Shar on Texas Colony. This came to mind, of course, because it's another battle with a red Gelgoog fighting a Gundam in the desert, but also because that one features Shar using his Gelgoog to shield Lala from the explosion of Makveh's Gyan in a very similar way to this one. You brought up the ending earlier and the way that some of the village elders are talking about Masai, which I felt was strangely contradictory. Because on the one hand, they say her heart has found peace, which sounds like a good thing. It sounds like what they mean is that she has finally reconciled herself with Tog's death. She no longer feels like she has to devote her life to this mission that he had, that she has achieved some kind of inner peace from turmoil that's been plaguing her for who knows how long. But on the other hand, they say that like the fallen Gelgoog, her spirit, her heart, whatever, will never rise again. Yeah. Which makes it sound like she might as well have died. I, yeah, it makes her sound like the walking dead. And although I agree with Pudu's impulse to want to save Masai, because, you know, while there is life, there is possibility for change and possibility for growth and for things to get better. Even Pudu acknowledges at the end this sense that Masai will be alone forever, which 
you know, very melodramatic <laughs> on the one hand. Like as a reasonable adult person, I'm like, she's still young. She could get over this. She could have another life. She could have another love. Like, <laughs> let's not go overboard, people. Mm -hmm. But everyone around Masai, even the people who have like known her, presumably since she was born, uh, are reacting kind of similarly. Like this was the end of something major for her. And like, they don't really see what the rest of her life could be. I think it's important to ask, are they right? Now, the way this line is positioned at the end of the episode, and it's said by a person who we have reason to think of as like a wise elder, all of that construction suggests that the line is correct. But immediately afterwards, Masai goes back home and she curls up in a corner and she starts talking to Tog again. And that suggests to me that she's not actually severed from him, that this is not what everyone seems to think it is, the end of something, but merely a transition. But it didn't feel like talking to Tog in the ways that she had talked to him in other parts of the episode. And there's something so sad about her sitting there very much alone saying to herself, what now? But the act of asking what now creates the possibility of a something next. True. It would be a much sadder scene if she had just gone and curled up silently in the corner of that house. I think she's showing that everyone around her still fails to understand her. And my feeling of Gundam as a show uh, over all of it that we've watched, and particularly in Double Zeta, strongly rejects the idea of uh, throwing your life away, self-sacrifice, suicidality of whatever flavor, uh, and embraces the idea that no matter how difficult, life is worth living. This is a thing that Camille said um, towards the end of Zeta. He makes the point that, like, ultimately life is the most important thing. And for all that we may not always agree with Judo and how he reacts to or interprets these things happening around him, his inability to understand those sacrifices is meant to be the sort of childlike inability to reconcile all of the things that make no sense in the adult world. And not just the things that make no sense and are sort of arcane and complicated, but the things that make no sense and are bad. <laughs> Yeah, I think it actually serves a protective function for Judo. It's preventing him from being co-opted into this world as thoroughly and as quickly as Camille was. You mentioned that the elders are positioned as wise, but I actually think the way they're set up throughout the episode undercuts that a lot. Oh, I agree completely. I mean that we would expect them to be wise if this were a different show. Yeah, I mean, they begin by... Again, acting on their own knowledge and suspicions, assuming that other people are, are know the things they know and are coming at things from the same place. That they're so remote, there's no possible explanation for the AU kids to be there that isn't nefarious. And the refusal of water, coming shortly after Masai has explained the so-called rule of the desert to offer aid to those in need, strikes me as significant. There's also a generational component. Masai is significantly younger than any other character we see except for the kids, and the kids love mobile suits. 
Kids just love mobile suits and fighting. That's universal. At the same time, the elder tells everybody to go home, and nobody does. All the adults <laughs> also stay and watch the fight. And the kids don't just think the mobile suit is cool; they think Masai is cool. Well, she is. And so, you know, this undercuts all of the years of everyone talking about Masai like she's crazy or undercutting her and demeaning her because of her love affair and because of her sort of personal mission. And despite all of that, the kids still watch her piloting a mobile suit and think, dang, that's really <laughs> cool. I found her motivations kind of hard to understand personally, to empathize with. And yet she is so cool. I don't know. I That's... Hmm. I felt like I completely understood what it was she was trying to do. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, I mean, imagine that you show up in some remote place and you feel certain that you know something that's going to be dangerous for them. And you're the Cassandra. You're, you're trying to warn everyone and everyone ignores you. And despite having scorn heaped upon you your whole life, you work for the betterment and protection of all of these other people and then he died without ever being proven right and the only person who ever loved you and understood you is left to have to deal with all of these people who never tried to understand you and then finally the moment comes when you think oh, see he was right he was right everyone see the person you heaped scorn on <laughs> was right so yeah i I felt that very keenly, particularly as we've had a lot of conversations recently about you know, what is history and who defines it and who tells those stories and what gets included and what gets left out. And she's trying to take control of Tug's story. Yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds like a great story. I would absolutely read or watch a Tog and Masai backstory. Give us that, Sunrise. Well, and the whole time, everyone in the village probably told her that she was being foolish and reckless. You know, some of that scorn is getting heaped on her, too. We get another round of silly space-noid moments. That's what I'm calling them now. Silly space-noids. <laughs> Which is funny, naturally, but also really, really important to this episode. And significant to... It seems all of the Earth episodes, it's come up over and over and over again. And so clearly this is something they're trying to hammer home to us. You know, Judo thinks you can get water out of a camel's hump, <laughs> for one. Uh, their maps are from before the one-year war. The fact that Bicha is even surprised that they're unwelcome, I feel like betrays a total lack of understanding <laughs> of their situation. Well, and Puru dumping the water on herself. Eno accidentally putting his hand on the blazing hot surface of the mobile suit. I think the water has more to do with Puru's selfishness, but I do, I do want to say I loved the way we see the bottle of water when they're all sitting outside, and then we see it again foregrounded when a couple of them are trying to keep Elle from fighting Rue, and Elle and Rue are bickering, and you think in that moment, oh no, they're going to knock over the water, and they don't. They want you to notice that water bottle. <laughs> you know something is going to happen to that water bottle. For me, as soon as I saw Puru there being overheated, I was like, oh no. 
Pluto is going to dump that water on herself. I did enjoy the degree to which Elle and Rue are bickering, but they're both kind of right and kind of wrong. And the takeaway is mostly that the heat has made everybody <laughs> testy. Yeah. So this is, I think, a natural consequence of something you highlighted before, which is they don't have a leader. There is no hierarchy within this group. Everyone is basically equal. They're making these decisions by consensus, and consensus often means arguing about it. They're butting heads in a very familial kind of way, because not only is no one in charge, no one wants to be in charge, and no one wants anybody else to be the boss. Some of the most telling lines there are Elle telling Rue, you're the one who's a real soldier, and Rue says, so are all of you. Like, there was a time when maybe Rue would have wanted to be in charge, but she doesn't seem to want to now. Well, and there was early conflict between Bicha and Judo over which one gets to be in charge, and it's clear now that neither of them is. And the final silly space noids moment, although this one is less funny and more poignant, is Bicha wonders out loud why anybody would live in such an inhospitable place as this village in the middle of the desert. Like, why don't they just leave, he says. Uh, obviously completely not understanding how anything works for people. <laughs> I mean, this focuses our attention on this village, on the people who live there. And also, you know, we should think about the village from the face of Rommel, the fishing village uh, from sibling love in the South Seas. The thing is, all of these put together really reveal how inaccurate the way the people have talked about Earth so far is, because we always hear about the elites living on Earth, the special status of Earth. But Earth is also full of these uh, small, poor, isolated communities living their lives essentially unchanged from the way they were hundreds of years ago. They know about mobile suits, but like they don't have computers, they don't have cars, and all of this fighting over Earth essentially ignores the existence of all of these communities. Beecha sees the desert as inhospitable and unsafe, and that may be how many of these people think of space. You know, they can't, some of them maybe cannot imagine why a person would live in space. I actually think that's probably one of the reasons why they set them in the desert instead of in some other biosphere, because the desert is very inhospitable, but so is space. And there are these oases towns that are very much like the colonies. We've also seen, and so in theory, you know, our characters should be aware that it's difficult to travel among the colonies if you're a regular person. Yeah, Beecha suggests, why don't they leave? What evidence is there that they could? Well, and go where? Yeah, he is both young and a spacenoid and doesn't understand. The final thing I want to talk about in this episode is uh, mentioned in passing. It's very brief, uh, but significant. They make a point of mentioning the town's mosque. Rue is the only one who knows what a mosque is, and she compares it to a uh, Christian church or congregation. So it would seem that uh, life in the colonies, or at least uh, back in Shangri-La, was heavily atheistic. We've brushed up against indications of religion a few times. Um, you know, we've seen crosses for graves, for instance. And Camille had that little shrine in his quarters on the Argama. There were people who looked like priests at Garma's funeral. But this is the first time we've really gotten an explicit 
direct by name mention of a religion, of a place of worship. And we actually hear from the elder of the town that this is not merely a relic of a bygone age. The people are engaged in prayer when they arrive. And because this is the first time it's been brought up explicitly in Gundam, uh, it feels worth addressing. I suspect they're evoking a sense of the uh, modern urban youth as being detached from traditional religion, which is definitely a thing that has been happening for a long time and certainly was in the mid-80s. Um, in Japan in particular, because of the way the shrine system works, often people even living in cities are still affiliated with a shrine in their hometown. And so you may feel like religion the spiritual realm is a thing that happens far away, out there in small towns in the countryside, not here in the big cities. It potentially also points to a certain uh, homogenization of society in some of the colonies, that they're not particularly diverse, that these kids have no exposure to organized religion. <laughs> there are no practicing Muslims in Shangri-La, I guess. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> they're also poor kids who grew up in the slums, they may just not have ever gone to the parts of Shangri-La that have mosques. Perhaps. I'm just not sure I could reconcile there being like a Muslim community in Shangri-La and no member of that community being poor. And the same for any other religion. Fair. Yeah, it was a, an oddly specific moment that brings up a bunch of interesting questions about uh, society. <laughs> in the universal century and also makes the appearance of the pig at the end of the episode feel very strange. Well, the town may not be entirely Muslim. Very true. I know pig raising is definitely a thing in Senegal, which is probably where they are. So I'm going to bring this up in the research, but I thought they might be in Mauritania. We know they got themselves lost. Well, and given the way uh, Gundam likes to do very circuitous routes over Earth geography, I'm convinced that they could conceivably be anywhere <laughs> in that northern portion of Africa. Yeah, the show kind of writes itself a get out of being strictly accurate free card here because they do have those references to uh, aggressive, unrestrained desertification that has changed the landscape plus all of the maps being out of date and the kids probably being a bit lost. So they could be in a whole bunch of different places and it wouldn't necessarily look the way it does today. But as you said, we'll talk more about that during the research. I do want to finish with two quick notes. The first one is that Masai shares a voice actor with four. Cool. And second, there is really something about wearing one left arm garment on these kids. L has like a, a ribbon-based left fashion glove. Pudu, of course, has the red left glove that she still wears. And then I noticed in this episode, Judo and Mondo are both wearing like Vam braces or like a forearm warmer. Maybe it's Lycra. I don't know. But they're both wearing it and they're only wearing it on the left arm. Does it have to do with which parts of the controls they're using with that hand or arm, I wonder? It might. I will have to consider that possibility. The fact that you've noticed it on so many pilots makes me wonder if it's supposed to serve some kind of practical purpose. I like the instinct. I have no idea what practical purpose Elle's ribbons contraption could serve. That's fair. 
Sometimes things just look cool, especially in the 80s. This is our second desert episode of the season, so it seems safe to say that the Double Zeta team liked this setting. For research, we're going to do a roundup of various elements from the episode and their real-world inspirations. Everything from barren trees to rock formations, oases to architecture. First off, where might the Gundam team be? If they're not still in Senegal, Mauritania or Mali seem like the most likely if the idea is to get to the north of Dakar by going around over land. But we've also seen some pretty circuitous routes in Gundam before, so I'm not positive we can rule out anywhere in the northern part of the continent. I'm remembering the White Bases route over North America. I want to shout out Petsuchan, a Gundam fan on Twitter who has been doing heroic work these past few months trying to pin down the real-world locations for the Gundam team's trek across Africa. They've put together a route to show all the movement during the Africa arc, and their ideas have been hugely helpful for me in looking at these questions myself. Uh, I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can check out Petsu's work, but you should be warned that there are some spoilers for episodes still coming up. As for this episode, Petsu suggests Algeria or Niger as plausible locations for Masai's village. Based on our own speculations and Petsu-chan's, I also spent some time trying to determine whether the unnamed oasis town of this episode is based on a real-world place, but without much success. There are numerous oasis towns in Mauritania, Niger, and Algeria, and none of the two dozen or so I looked at pictures of were an exact fit, although there are some clear similarities of layout and architecture. We get only the briefest overhead glimpse of the town and the oasis when Elle first flies over them, and other shots of the town are fairly generic. The town portrayed in the episode is also, frankly, really small, (laughs) and there's the possibility that if it's based on a real place rather than simply inspired by one, it's not a place that's showing up in my searches. I'm thinking of the possibility that someone involved may have traveled to the area, or that they're referencing a travelogue or some similar first-hand account. Petsuchan speculates that it is inspired by and based off of the city of Agadez and the town of Timia, both in the Ayer Mountains region of Niger. In terms of architecture, I found some interesting facts about architecture in the region, but most don't directly relate to the episode, and so I'm going to let Tom kick us off. He had somewhat more success. During the talkback, we zoomed in on the exchange between Rue and the rest of the Gundam team about this unnamed Oasis Town's mosque, which they describe as a triangular building. This struck us as odd for two reasons. First, because the style of mosque architecture with which we are most familiar would not ever be described as triangular in any sense. And second, because the shots of the town throughout the episode never show any buildings that I would call triangular. The largest and most prominent building that we see in the town is a boxy tower, slightly wider at the base than at the top, with wooden beams protruding from it at regular intervals, and capped with a kind of rounded cone structure, far from triangular. The image that comes to mind when I think of a mosque is the traditional dome and minaret style, and if you look for pictures of mosques in West Africa today, You'll find a lot of mosques built in that style, like the Great Mosque of Tuba or the brand new and massive Masilekul Jinan. But historically, things were very different. 
older mosques in the region show a broad variety of different architectural styles, and part of the reason for that goes back to when Islam first reached those regions. From its origins in Arabia in 610 CE, Islam spread throughout the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and Asia via two main processes, by conquest and by trade. Mosques in conquered regions tended to be built according to the architectural preferences of their new foreign overlords, and the expertise of the builders was imported from the imperial heartland. But in the more remote regions, where Islam arrived more gradually and peacefully via the caravan trade, mosques were constructed according to local styles and using local materials. This created a remarkable diversity of architectural styles around the world, and in West Africa in particular. With that in mind, let's now go back to that line about the triangular building versus the roughly rectangular tower that was actually shown in the art. Because I think this suggests that the scriptwriter and the background artist may have been working from different references for what a mosque in this region should look like. Because if you look at historical mosques in the European-dominated Dakar region, such as the Mosque of the Old Colonial Capital St. Louis, you'll find that they have a distinct triangular shape to them. However, if you look at the most famous historical mosque in the region, the Great Mosque of Djenneh in neighboring Mali, you'll see almost rectangular towers topped with rounded cones, very much like the one depicted in the show. And perhaps most notably, the flat surfaces of the towers, both in the show and in the real world, are punctuated by wooden spikes emerging perpendicular to the façade. These wooden spikes are called toron, and they serve both as decoration and as a kind of permanent scaffolding to make repair work easier. The towers are made from clay, and so they need to be resurfaced annually. The Mosque of Djenneh is the most famous exemplar of the Sudanese style of mosque, but it's hardly the only one. One source described the Mosque of Djenneh as iconic and said that numerous village mosques in the surrounding area tried to emulate it but on a miniature scale. And that sure sounds like exactly what this village has done. Petsu compared the mosque in Masai's village instead to the mosque in Agadez, an ancient city in the desert of Niger. The Agadez Mosque bears a lot of similarities to both the Djenei one and the one in the show. It's clearly part of the same architectural tradition, and I will include pictures of both in the show notes so that you can compare them. One thing to note that Tom did not mention, the Great Mosque at Djenei is the largest mud brick structure in the world, I believe. That's one of its claims to fame. Well, and the uh, mosque at Agadez is the tallest mud brick structure in the world. Mud brick holds up pretty well in these drier climates. It would be more liable to break down if it were exposed to more rain and humidity, but in desert climates, uh, it's a popular and relatively sturdy building material. It has the added benefit that walls plastered over with mud can be made exceptionally smooth, which is great for defensive purposes. Uh, the mud was also used to smooth over the already steep sides of defensive ditches for the same reason. In terms of the more general architectural information that I found, there are a huge number of different architectural influences on North and West Africa, including remnants of Roman architecture, the, as Tom mentioned, influence of Islamic architecture and of Al-Andalus after the early Muslim conquests of the 7th century, 
later colonial architecture. The mosque architecture that I mentioned with the triangular pediment, like in St. Louis, is heavily influenced by European colonial architecture styles and by the designs of Christian churches, uh, which those mosques closely resemble. In Mauritania, and in some of the other areas that are largely desert, a popular building method is to use dry-laid stone, which is to say, stone fitted together with little or no clay or mortar. Since in some of these areas, stone is very plentiful, while wood and water, necessary for the uh, mud brick buildings, are scarce. West Africa, of which Senegal is a part, had a great many walled cities, towns, and more expansive systems. Sungbo's Eredo is an example. This Yoruban system of defensive walls and ditches in what is now Nigeria is described as the, quote, largest pre-colonial monument in Africa, larger than the Great Pyramids or the city of Great Zimbabwe. I assume they're referring to total volume of these works. And the walls of Benin City hold the record for the world's largest earthworks carried out prior to the mechanical era. For a time, they were the world's largest man-made structure, extending for around 16,000 kilometers and covering an area of 6,500 square kilometers. They are four times longer than the Great Wall of China and consumed a hundred times more material than the Great Pyramid of Cheops. Large portions of these walls were destroyed when the British sacked Benin in 1897. Another element that stood out in the setting design for this episode was the rock formations. They're used to great effect. Judo tries to use them to navigate, but doesn't know them well enough, while Masai uses them to hide Tag's Gelgug and for cover in her fight with the Gundam team. There's even a bit during the fight where Masai lands directly on some rock formations so that she has good footing while the Gundam team flounders in the sand. For many of us, the stereotypical image of the deserts in northern Africa is more like what we see in the previous episode, Rommel's face, sand dunes stretching as far as the eye can see. But the Sahara can in fact be subdivided into about a dozen smaller deserts, and within them is a great variety of terrain and even microclimates. The most famous of these kinds of rock formations are in Algeria and Chad, but it seems they can occur anywhere there are mountains, including the region we've speculated the Gundam team to be in, the Ayer Mountains region in Niger. These mountain ranges and plateaus have a lot of sandstone in them, and over millions of years, pressure, volcanic and tectonic activity, wind and water, all break up the edges of mountains and cause the erosion that leads to these spars of rock. Even if these rock formations are not sandstone, they would still be pieces of nearby mountains, broken off or eroded away over the vastness of geological time. I'll include links in the show notes to pictures of some truly stunning real-world stone formations from the region and some in Niger that look an awful lot like the ones we see in this episode. Be sure to check out those photos. It's just a flash across the screen, but during Elle's flyover, we catch a glimpse of some greenery at the edge of the oasis. And then around the main entrance of the town, there are some shots of trees that appear dry and leafless. It turns out, there are a surprising number of trees that grow in the Sahara. In fact, just last year, researchers used a deep learning AI to analyze NASA's satellite imagery of the desert and counted 1.8 billion trees in the Sahel portion of the Sahara, which is the far west in Senegal, Mauritania, and Western Sahara. In terms of types of trees and large shrubs that can and do live in the desert, there are species of olive, cypress, mastic, 
acacia, palm, oleander, and tamarisk. The barren trees shown here are obviously not palms, and while some varieties of the other trees I mentioned can be deciduous, which is to say, the kind of tree that sheds their leaves for a season rather than being constantly in leaf, I would bet that their barrenness in the animation is meant to emphasize the harshness of the environment, or even to imply that environmental changes caused by humans have made it impossible for even well-adapted trees to survive. Speaking of things that just briefly flash across the screen, there is a uh, Tomino animal moment in this. Longtime fans of Gundam and Tomino's work will note that he often includes local creatures in the different episodes, thinking back to the capybara of Jaburo, for instance. There's a sort of bright reddish-orange lizard that we see scurrying through the desert. And after a little bit of looking, I think that's probably an Uromastix, which is a reddish-orange lizard that lives <laughs> in the Sahara, specifically in parts of Algeria, Mali, and Niger. Moving on to Maasai, we assume that the character Maasai is named for the Maasai people, an ethnic group from across the continent, mostly inhabiting Kenya and northern Tanzania. Maasai is also a real given name and surname, though again, that's mostly in Kenya. If I were to hazard a guess, the Gundam writers chose the name Maasai for this character because of the famed fearsomeness of Maasai warriors. As long as we're talking about Maasai and famed warriors of Africa, the decision to give Maasai a Gelgoog out of all of the possible Xeon mobile suits is an intriguing one, because there are certain aspects of the Gelgoog's design, especially its armament, that call to mind the equipment of Zulu warriors in what is now South Africa, as their panoply developed under legendary warrior king Shaka Zulu in the 1800s. In particular, the Gelgoog's shield resembles the large cowhide shields used by Zulu warriors. And the Gelgoog's melee weapon, the quote, beam naginata, has rather a lot more in common with the ikwa, the short thrusting spear used by Zulu soldiers, than it does with the Japanese polearm from which it takes its name. This is a connection that I had wanted to draw all the way back in Season 1 when the Galgoog debuted, but I never felt like I had quite enough to go on at that point. After this episode, though, it seems a lot more likely that the Galgoog was partially based on depictions of Zulu warriors. The most generous possible interpretation of the way in which the writing team has sort of picked and chosen bits and pieces from very different cultures and ethnic groups <laughs> to combine here, uh, is that they're looking at this sort of futuristic pan-Africanism, but I strongly suspect it's more simple and more troubling than that. <laughs> Merely the all-too-common flattening of the whole continent into one thing. And this is not necessarily a one or the other. The use of a kind of pan-African pastiche can be a reference to the pan-African movement, and it can also be because the writers and artists don't know a lot about Africa. While Gundam is no paragon of representation, I appreciate that the choice of setting here isn't purely aesthetic. It's not about the visual interest of a quote-unquote exotic location. This region, with its sometimes harsh environment and history of colonial violence, was clearly seen as an ideal setting to explore some of Gundam's most persistent themes. Who is war for? Who does it benefit? Who is hurt in the process? What can and should normal people do in the face of forces beyond their control? What kind of relationship should humans have to the earth and the environment? 
And what should we do about the damage already done? While the story is out in space, it's easy for us to think of the Earthnoids as one group. This arc reminds us that the reality is much more complicated. Next time on episode 3.25, The Demon Judo, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta episode 27 and Hortense. Who sets off fireworks in the middle of the day? Cutouts and short shorts, and is that a tabard? Listen, everybody wants to be with Judo. Fiddling while Dakar burns. Men telling girls to smile more. Haman's suit, Lena's gown, just so many good outfits. The eagles! It's a Garuda. Garuda is a type of eagle! And it's all lies, you big dumb idiot! You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting... Zeta Gundam is best watched with a live studio audience that can laugh, awe, and boo, and throw marshmallows at Jupiter Headbandia whenever he's on stage. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion was inspired by Comrade RC on the MSB Patrons Discord. Thank you, Comrade RC. And thank you for listening. understand. I'm in a dilemma, Nina. Yeah. And I refuse to do anything about it. (laughs) I completely understand. Although in my case, the dilemma actually is somebody else's fault. Well, yeah. (laughs) I have a soft spot for those sorts of, uh, like, emotionally repressed people. Um, Because I, you know, I see a lot of myself in that. And a part of me is just like, oh, angry baby. (laughs) Yeah. You're so... You're so bad at emotions and so angry. Yep. Oh, my angry baby. Yeah. It's like when you're holding a cat and it's squirming in it your really arms. Doesn't and like want you to, the it you. doesn't want you to love it. And you're like, I demand, I insist on loving you. <laughs> you know who she reminds me of? Who? The way we're talking about her right now? Camille. Oh. Oh, my angry baby. <laughs> you're just ruining your own life so hard. You want to talk about work? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to it. Let's talk.
talk work. Then, then cars go by. Room. I think somebody asked Tomino about this at one point, and he said he couldn't remember. I feel that. Tom will occasionally reference something we talked about a week ago, and I'll be like, no, no, I don't remember anything from last <laughs> week's episode. Well, this happens uh, to me when people are like, oh, I'm listening through season one, and I got to episode 1.12, and I, you guys talked about this thing, and it was so interesting. And I'm like, that was a lifetime ago. I... I am not the same person I was when we recorded that episode. But sometimes you remember. Oh, yeah, totally. Sometimes your strange brain <laughs> recalls those, <laughs> those kinds of details. I'm going off script too much. I just need to stick to my script. That was a fun thing to read about. <laughs> where this particular anxiety is coming from. Couldn't just be that the world's on fire. Definitely couldn't be that. I read a survey about this years ago and I'm finally going to be able to use it. Because he thought they were space caltrops. I don't know what caltrops are, so, you know, I'm imagining kind of cough drops made of calamine, but probably not. Okay, uh, let's try that again. Uh, the main cannons need calibrating. Oh, we're getting a signal from the Spatian now. Spatian? What's a Spatian? Troy Beth Mugglethroid on Tripper.Space, 18th of Space, January. Am I the exasport for not for refusing to give- mm, No, this is not going well. Got to do some more calibrations.